if we think of the child archetype, for example, spontaneous, intuitive, creative, and the, and there's an innocence that's this innocence. It's kind of something that I think Carl Jung refers to it as being closer to the original vision. Hello and welcome to the Word for Woman podcast. I'm Christina, your host, and my guests are people who operate at the intersection of science and spirituality. It is my great pleasure today to speak with Dr. Donna Thomas. Welcome to the show, Donna. Oh, thank you, Christina. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's so wonderful to have you on today. Dear listener, Dr. Donna Thomas is a research fellow in the Center for Children and Young People's Participation at the University of Central Lancashire in the UK. As a researcher focused on the areas of self, subjectivity, and consciousness, Donna examines how children's living experiences could inform post-materialist science and philosophy. The experiences that she investigates includes children's extrasensory or unexplained experiences, such as telepathy, premonitions, communicating with deceased relatives, out-of-body and near-death experiences. Throughout this interview, we may also be referring to these experiences as parapsychological experiences. Dr. Thomas's research aims to inform service, system, and policy development. Her book, Children's Unexplained Experiences in a Post-Materialist World, is coming out on the 28th of July, 2023. I would like to begin today's episode with a near-death experience of a 15-year-old girl. On a dark and rainy night in September 1988, a young girl trapped inside the burning wreckage of a car began to die. As the car began to ricochet, turning over with the force of a whirling dervish, the young girl became paralyzed, constrained by a consuming terror. As her stunned body slammed against hard plastic and glass window, she knew she was about to die. Terror was swiftly replaced by a deep peace that cannot be imagined or described. It held, caressed, and dissolved the young girl as she grew, expanding to the length and breadth of the universe. No longer a young girl, she held the wisdom of 10,000 scholars and the stillness of a snow-covered meadow, untouched by human footprints. A collage of images imprinted across her field of awareness, scenes and memories that extended across the 15 years of her short life. The young girl didn't know if the movie lasted minutes, hours, days, or a millennium. Time did not exist here. All she knew was the deepest chasm of love that she felt for friends, enemies, her dysfunctional family, boys who had rejected her, the police who had chased her, and the teachers who had belittled and berated her. These beings now dissolving across a divine screen of perception that lovingly held each version of this young girl. Then, in a swift split second, the whole universe once again became the young girl. A girl in pain and fear, her legs twisted with the bent metal of the front seat and her face broken and bleeding. As the young girl was dragged from the burning wreckage through the shards of broken window, the car exploded. Dear listeners, you might have already guessed that this story belongs to Donna. Donna, thank you so much for sharing this story. And I would like to ask you, as you look back to this near-death experience as your adult self, what immediately comes to mind? Thank you, Christina. You read that so beautifully as well. Um, well, it might be a good place to to begin with um, my view of the experience when I was 15 and then look at how I view the experience now as, as an adult. Um, because when this happened when I was 15, I, I had no idea at all what had happened to me in the car. And I know you refer to this as a near-death experience, and it certainly did carry the features of typical near-death experiences, such as um, the life review, so seeing your entire life in front of you. Um, and it's, it's it happens really quickly, so it's it's very difficult to put time onto that. But that is a feature of a, of a near-death experience. 
Um, and, and although I was hurt um, and my life was in danger in terms of my physicality, it, I wasn't at death's door, so to speak. So, so the death was really of the 15-year-old girl or certainly the sense of feeling or being a 15-year-old girl where my identity had, be, had become the entire universe and, and with that, a very deep sense of peace and this un unconditional love that I've never experienced in my very short life at that time. You know, I came from um, a very difficult um, childhood. Um, so to experience any kind of love was, was, um, was an unknown to me in, at that time, but to experience this feeling of this tremendous unconditional love. And this this feeling didn't leave me for about four weeks after either. So um, I, I went to the hospital, I then returned home, I was off school and I was in this really beautiful space where everyone who came to see me, you know, again, this unconditional love was just pouring out everything seemed right with the world and then after a while when that feeling started to fade because it is a feeling or a sensation or a state of consciousness that if you are in this world it's not unless you you know you have it really significantly I don't think it stays permanently um so as it started to fade that's when the difficulties came so for example, I would go outside and I'd have, I would start expanding again into the sky. But this time it was the peace and the, the love wasn't there. It became frightening because I was kind of back in the, what we'd call the normal world. Um, and this caused significant issues for me in terms of going to school and, and these kinds of things as well. So at that time I had no idea what had happened to me. Um, this was a long time ago, of course, because I'm an, an adult now. Um, but these experiences do still happen to children and young people. And even though we are um, many years down the line, there are still no um, spaces or places or um, books or leaflets or anything that could advise a child or a young person if they have a similar experience, you know, what this is. So um, from my adult perspective and, and how I kind of rationalize or better, better to say make more sense of this experience is that, um, you know, when we have an experience where our usual sense of self dissolves, whether that's through um, a peak experience in nature or through suffering, you know, or, or through trauma, when we have that experience of that that self dissolving, there's a sense that we're coming more into our true self or a truer identity rather than this person or this personhood that we often identify with in, in the world. Um, and it was a movement into a kind of a broader state of consciousness. Um, and, and that's how I kind of rationalize or make sense of that experience now as an adult. Looking back on this experience as your 15-year-old self, what helped or, on the contrary, hindered you in making sense of it? Because you talked about how children and young people don't have the support structures in place that they need to make sense of these experiences. So how did this manifest for you? Yeah, so the, the first thing to say is that... Um, if any child or young person tries to relate an experience like this, it's very, very difficult because there, there are no words really to try to represent a, a type of experience where you lose your sense of self. It's almost objectless in a way. And language is very object orientated. So it's really, really difficult for children um, and adults, not just children, to, to kind of say, this happened to me and I don't understand what's happened to me so that's the first thing and then the other layer to that is the the absence of support systems that, that do understand these kinds of experiences because often 
experiences of this nature could, for example, be misconstrued as dissociation, for example, and then the after effects of an experience like this. So for me, some of the after effects were I would go outside, I would expand again, I would merge with the sky. And this time it wasn't peaceful and and loving in the same way. It was more, it was frightening because if you are um, around lots of people and you're recognizing something that's happening in you, that's not meeting with the world that you're in, in a way, then you you feel um, different, weird. And then the narrative that's certainly built inside me um, as a 15 year old girl was, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. And I'm different from these other teenagers that are around me. And so what hindered that even more was, for example, going to school, um, you know, I was at high school at the time. High school is very, very difficult anyway for young people and certainly more difficult if you are having these kinds of experiences and other kinds of experiences. Because I felt myself becoming, for example, very kind of um, empathic in a sense. So um, I would very easily um, feel others' emotions and sensations in their body sometimes a sense that I was picking up on their thoughts um so I became very empathic and and that certainly doesn't help either because then you you become bombarded with the world and then you become reclusive and then to become reclusive as a as a young person again is not not good for well-being um and the and again the picture hasn't changed much today um other than there's a bigger focus on children's mental health. But even though there's a bigger focus on children's mental health, um, you know, we have to ask the question, is it the right kind of focus? Is it coming from the right understandings about these experiences? And not just about these experiences, but about the nature of children, about the nature of us as human beings. So these experiences, when we research them with children, they start to, to interrogate and raise lots of these questions, not just about children, but about um, our social systems, our health systems and, and ontological questions, such as, well, how, how are we actually thinking about what the world is made of and what we're made of, so to speak? Let's talk um, about what you just mentioned about doing research with children, because this really stood out to me as an important distinction. So research with children as opposed to research on children. And to clarify it for our listeners, unlike most psychological studies focused on children, Donna invites children into the studies as researchers in their own right and involves them in all aspects of the study, such as co-designing the experiments, um, co-interpreting, co-analyzing the data that is collected. Again, that is not the norm in research done on children. I would love to ask you, could you share more about how this looks like in practice and what things really stood out to you in doing research this way? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and just just to pick up on some of, of your points. So um, historically in qualitative research, um, you know, qualitative research is it kind of privileges um, narratives and stories and anecdotes and what we would consider to be soft data. But historically, it was very much rooted in, in kind of the hard sciences, you know, in, in a way for it to be recognized as a science in, in and of itself. So it's carried some of them principles over in the sense of, um, you know, as researchers, we can research on people and children in this case, rather than with, and in a way that's seeing people as research objects. Um, and then if we have research objects, we can then measure experience, human experience. And, and it's very questionable whether we can measure, whether human experience is something that can actually be measured um, and that's something we, we might come back to as we carry on. So in terms of children and research with children, again, there is a bit of a history in the sense, you know, in the early 1990s, um, especially in the field of childhood studies, there was a recognition that um, children have incredible capacities to be involved in research. Um, and, 
you know, prior to this, people, uh, children were considered as kind of illogical and irrational and incapable of, um, you know, being able to represent and, and make sense of their own experiences of, of themselves and the world. So, you know, the field of childhood studies has really addressed this and, and there's been lots of work done as developing children as researcher approaches or participatory research approaches. So that's where um, my research sits kind of within that field. So the difference in that is that instead of a child being a research object or even sometimes a research subject, um, they're an active agent in the research process and they're centralized and they're valued and they're valued for their own experiential authority, epistemological authority. So it's their expertise in knowledge about the research agenda, about the research topic. In, in a nutshell, they know their own stuff. They know their own experiences. Um, but in traditional research practice that can be, you know, very um, kind of um, empirically orientated, um, and have specific ways of doing research, um, it can exclude certain groups with children being one of them. And there are other groups that it can exclude in terms of excluding their ways of being in the world, their own ways of representing their knowledge. Um, so participatory research um, and children as active agents means that you are coming to the research process itself from different starting points and in different ways. So for example, you may, um, and I do have an, I will use an example. So at the moment, um, I'm working on a research study with um, a doctor who's a pediatric consultant and we're doing a research study with children in intensive care. And these are children who have been very sick, very poorly. Um, some of them have actually died for 20 minutes um, five minutes so for different amounts of time. So we are using participatory research methods to enable these children to share their experiences of the intensive care journey, but also their extrasensory experiences. And these might be near-death experiences. They may be out-of-body experiences. There's experiences of things like biolocation, so being in two places at the same time. Um, so there are very interesting experiences for children and they're experiences that are often overlooked in clinical practice. And it, it's strange, really, because they are, so, they are such a big aspect of a child's journey in intensive care, but they're often overlooked. Um, so as an example of how children are involved, children are involved in, in two levels, in a sense. So we have a group of what we call young researchers around this study. And this group is made up of children and young people who have had hospital experience. Some of them have all, who are also have extrasensory experiences. And we meet with them at certain points along the study. And we they're kind of like experts in the study. And they've actually co-designed research methods um, that we have used with younger children in the hospital context. So for example, they came up with the small world play method and small world play is kind of toys that look like objects in the world. So they recommended we get kind of a hospital set, which has just been incredible to use with younger children in intensive care. So they use these toys and these play to represent their play, their experience. So, and which is good for children who don't have many verbal capacities as well in that situation. So they play a very active role. Um, whereas participants in the research, they st we still want them and want to facilitate these children to have an active agency. So we have a suite of uh, creative research methods um, and we take them and they make choices about how they want to engage in the research. They may want to draw, they may want to play, they may want to take the video recorder and blog or record the researchers. So there's different ways for involving, but it's that's the with bit. So it's not the on, that's kind of the with bit. This, this way of doing research with children, to me, it really, 
it really speaks to me in exactly what you said about the fact that social sciences have kind of, I guess, tried to, in a way, step up and I'm putting bigger quotes, but to being more of like, a, you know, in line with STEM type of disciplines and looking at a person as, as an object. And it feels like across the board, we are coming to the realization that you can't really do that for 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 a host of reasons but one of them being the fact that each person is a unique vantage point in into this world you know and that's not something that we get to ignore or impose our own view over if we want to actually understand what this world is about we kind of need to involve everyone across the board and give them an equal seat at the table and I love that you do this with children because I feel it's one of the um, assumptions that kind of goes unquestioned in the world because we look to children as being dependent on us and adults having to guide them and them not knowing much about anything really um when in fact that's not the case and I love that through your work you're saying no actually they are you know they 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 have ownership over their experiences they know best what's happening and they are beings in their own right they're not like you say these beings who are about to become adults and you know that that's the only thing to them um and it really speaks to me because the more i go into this world of bringing of how people have been attempting to bring together the insights that we gain through the scientific method and insights that we gain from say spiritual practices or from having extrasensory experiences um it really stands out to me that a lot of perspectives are not brought to the table um, so when you talk about children's perspectives being excluded and also other ways of being um, in the world and, and groups of people being excluded, um, it really speaks to me. Um, so I wanted to ask you, aside from this exclusion of children that we are going to come back to, you, I have seen you also join several of your parapsychology colleagues um, in pointing out the historic neglect of women researchers and their contributions to both parapsychology and to scientific activity at large. And you bring these two exclusions of children and women together under what you call a masculine order of science that dominates current day research. Um, I would love uh, for you to share more on that because I feel to me it brings words to something I could feel but I didn't really have words for yeah these things are so difficult to put words to they, they really are yeah so um th so that came about from um I did a presentation last year for the SSEPA um you know around children and their extrasensory or parapsychological experiences um and the first thing that was really interesting is that out of so many, and there were so many amazing, wonderful presentations, mine was the only one on children. So that was really noticeable. So immediately we think, okay, where are the children? So there's missing children here in this field. And, you know, there was um, there was someone who was listening to, to my presentation and she was one of the editors of um, the journal, the special issue, Women and Parapsychology Revisited. And it was re and it's revisited because they, there was a similar uh, symposium in 1991 with a group of um, academics in parapsychology who were looking at this issue of uh, women's position in the field of parapsychology. So, so they kindly invited me to um to write a piece for the special issue, and I was I was really surprised actually because you know I had looked at women's writing a very long time ago when I was studying for my own degree because my degree was in linguistics and language, um and and something that I never thought that I, that I would come that I would come back to, but it was so interesting to see the convergences. So when I started to dig into this and look into this more deeply, um, not only was this, this convergence around, you know, missing children from the field and kind of women on the margins in a sense, there was also the issue of how women and children um, represent knowledge. And, and this comes back to the idea of, um, feminine, uh, which means um, feminine writing. And it was a term coined by Helen Sisu, who was um, a huge 
feminist writer and she talks about this kind of phallogocentric symbolic order and what this means this is about male theory and male discourses that that have historically been in this mainstream position and because it's been in this mainstream position it is therefore othered um, various kinds of knowledges such as children's but especially women's because um, according to these kind of scholars these feminist scholars the, there is a particular kind of feminist writing and a particular kind of um, feminism and knowledge that's kind of if we look at if we think about a masculine symbolic order as being rational and very ordered um, you know and it represented through things like statistics or linguistics and then we think about the feminine symbolic um, or the semiotic as Julia Kristeva referred to it as we think of it more as a little bit more messy um, embodied um, ethnographic so it's around the subjective and the story and it's very different in a sense too and it's not that one is better than the other it's about the idea that one has been more privileged than the other um, and this is what science has been based on so we can from this we can say that science is kind of very um, masculine symbolic ordered orientated in a sense and that might explain why um, there are not as many women in in the hard sciences as there are male scientists so there's there's two levels to that for me christina there's something about the societal level mm. that kind of imposes that in a sense but then sustains that through cycles cultural cycles in a, in a way but there, there could be something deeper as well in terms of um the discourses the symbolism um the 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 modes of knowledge production that are valued and privileged um, and that that's also sustained so and Beverly Rubick um, talks about this in a really beautiful way because she refers to the archetypes and the idea of um, you know mainstream western science being that masculine archetype that wants to tame control and measure nature which is very different from the receptive from the feminine archetype which is more aligned to qualitative and participatory research practices because it's the the autoethnographic because it's the embodied because it's the creative so where children come into this as a convergence is that if we think of the child archetype for example spontaneous intuitive creative and the, and there's an innocence that's this innocence it's kind of something that I think Carl Jung refers to it as being closer to the original vision so closer to something that is very difficult for us to touch as we move into teen into being a young person and, and certainly an adult as well so I mean that's another way of thinking about these orders in science that can be very exclusionary to different uh, people or different groups different cultures too that really speaks to me and it helps me make sense of of some things that never quite sat right with me i always leaned more archetypal feminine in in, in my interests when i was given the choice of what to study at university i i went very you know hard social sciences you know <laughs> in a way because i said okay i'll do psychology then i'll do education and i know that even though i i could have perhaps chosen something more in the STEM field. I just did, it's, it wasn't what I wanted to do. As many times when I hear this discourse of, okay, we need more women in STEM. I think we need to be very careful about how we put it because I fully support each and every woman, non-binary person, everyone, men as well, who want to go in STEM. We should all have the chance if, if that's what we want to pursue. And at the same time, I feel the implicit messages hard sciences are better than these other ways of knowing and you shouldn't go for these um and we see we 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 see this throughout society and this never quite 
sat right with me. Thank you, Christina. I just wanted to add something as well, because um, we get into really tricky territory sometimes when we start to talk about gender or masculine and feminine. And, and one of the reasons I spoke about the archetype, and I think something that you're alluding to, is this is not necessarily about gender and it's not necessarily about men who are kind of pushing women out. It, it, it for me it's it's so it's much deeper than that and that's why it's 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 really valuable to re refer to these archetypal influences as energies in, in and of themselves rather than saying well actually it's a group of male scientists because it's just not the case really and if we think about um you know prominent philosophers and scientists today who are really again interrogating and challenging these mainstream um kind of normative ways of thinking and doing science or or, or whatever it is they're looking at there's a real sense and, I, and I've, I've wrote slightly about this around the sense that they are embodying kind of the green man the sky father which is about a really beautiful balance between the masculine energies and the feminine energies because these are scientists who are taking very logical and rational approaches um whether it's in science and philosophy, but they're also being very attentive and really valuing of kind of the more feminine energies and, and the more, so things like people's living experiences are becoming more important, for example. Mm. So there's a real sense, and, and I think that's really positive that some of the kind of more prominent male scientists now are, in, are embodying in a way both of these kinds of energies. So it, it isn't, it's not that we're saying we're not talking about gender we're talking about these archetypes and these energies can flow through anybody regardless of how you self-identify what is the green man <laughs> oh it's um it's a term from um i think it's paganism but i could be wrong there kind of a celtic term and it's it's a reference that's made to um it's kind of a, a myth mythological character um man in nature is is it's it's kind of um yeah the the masculine relationship with nature it's very different from the the kind of masculine archetype we talked about before which is about con it's not about controlling and taming nature it's the green man recognizes the power um and the relationship that he has with nature that's very similar to the feminine principles. So that that's how I mean when I say kind of green man sky fathers, these are kind of mytholo mythological uh, and cultural from different cultural terms. But I just thought that there was so, they kind of resonated with what I was certainly trying to write about when I was trying to navigate these really tricky areas of when we're talking about masculine and feminine principles and then gender because it's just such a tricky area for us to navigate thank you for adding all of that because i think it's really important um i agree with you i think it was important to be said and yes it is it is tricky i definitely do not want to conflate a feminine archetype with women or a masculine archetype with men I, i'm not even fully comfortable with the idea of with labeling them as feminine and masculine precisely because i think it does open up this trap of conflating it with gender. I did feel like I had to bring it up though um, to underline the, the importance of your work and and also to, to, to have these discussions because I feel, yes, we are not conflating it with gender. And at the same time, we do need to be aware that because we, we do operate with stereotypes in society, which do shape how we organize ourselves. It is true that when we think of masculine things, we do tend to associate them with men and vice versa, feminine with women. And I think while we don't want to conflate them in proposing solutions, we do need to be aware, I think, that they are conflated um, yeah. in practice many times. Yeah. It, it's, com it's, com it's another example of when there are so many really positive advances and progressions happening at a, at a theoretical level that are not kind of filtering down to the everyday realm. Mm. You know, it's the same principle for um, coming, moving back to children's extrasensory experiences, where there is there is much interrogation happening into in in the on the level of theory, 
where you know lots of scholars now are questioning what do we mean by mental health what do we mean by these disorders you know what does this all mean essentially and coming up with some really interesting and different proposals and ways for thinking about what it means to be human and and our own experiences but it it doesn't filter down it doesn't filter down certainly quick enough into kind of everyday realms and services for people that are still quite archaic and stuck in principles that are that are really being shook up at the moment so there is something about that movement from from there to to kind of um, I don't like to say the real world because it's kind of not the real world for me either. But if, if that the everyday world is is a better way to say it. On this topic, how can um, we help or accelerate this understanding we get from children and young people of parapsychological experiences into service system policy development, into education, into healthcare? Um, yeah. How can we get this moving along as quickly as possible? We have a double problem in a way because, you know, parapsychology and, and just to say, I'm not actually in the field of parapsychology. I, I kind of I am in the field of social sciences and childhood studies, but it, mm -hmm. it just so happens that um, my work, of course, touches on parapsychology, which is a wonderful field in and of itself. Um, but it's also a marginalized field. Um, so like children and women are marginalised, parapsychology as a field is actually marginalised and it, it's never, it never informs um, social policy and service uh, development and service delivery. It's, it's, it's miles and miles away from it. So that's the first issue. So although there are, for me, there is so much data and information in the field of parapsychology that would be incredible for informing policy and practice and and for the more mainstream psychology and mental health theories and all these kinds of things so so that has to happen in, in a way and, and that and how that happens is is I'm not really sure because there's something for me around interdisciplinary working as an academic and, and in academia we're still very kind of separated and segmented you know, you're over there and you, you've you got to stick in your own lane and, and you've got to be over there. And, I mean, I read something really awful the other day. It was something called, um, it was, it was, I can't remember exactly, but it was something called epistemic intrusion or trespassing. So, and it was the idea that, it, so, you know, say I'm, say I'm in social science, but I've, you know, for the past three or four years, I've developed a huge interest in philosophy and, and I'm kind of a student of philosophy, but but getting it, I like to think quite quickly and, and then putting it into, into my own work in a way, because we have to, we have to start challenging and, and thinking about what the world is made of in social sciences, because we're still in social sciences coming at it from a very kind of um, archaic, in a sense, perspective. Um, this idea of trespassing is that you shouldn't be trespassing into someone else's field because you don't know enough. And I started to think, well, that's really crazy because, you know, it's really nice for someone else to come into your field and say, have you thought about it this way? Or have you thought about putting that with that and kind of creating this tapestry of, of thinking and ideas? Mm -hmm. Because when we're talking about things like what it means to be human or, or the nature of reality, for me, I would say you need all hands on deck. You know, you can't just kind of look at this through one particular theoretical or academic lens. It has to be, for me, um, seen through all different kinds of lenses and told through all different kinds of stories in, in a way. So, um, yeah, so it, it has to be interdisciplinary. That That's what needs to happen. I think at that level is that, you know, academics need to start coming together and supporting each other more instead of considering that we're all trespassing and treading on each other's toes in a way um and then um in terms of on the ground research and researching with children i think there there is something positive to be had there and especially if it's coming from um the ethos of participatory research and how children how children's experiences shape services how they inform services. Now, no matter what the experience is, if, you, if you're inviting children in, for example, to 
to have a say on education. It's still probably a chance of kind of 20% of 100 that their voices will peter through to policy. There's still so many hurdles to jump, even with something as mainstream as, as um, ideas on education. So now we're talking about something kind of like extrasensory experiences, which are very much on the margins. So now we're probably down to a 5% chance rather than 20%, if that makes sense, what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. But it can happen. And again, I think this is about... Um, this is about how we talk about these experiences as well, because if you were to go to a service provider in a sense and say, you know, hey, guess what? I've been doing this research um, around these um, experiences um, that are kind of paranormal. If, say if I use that word, they, they, they wouldn't be engaged. But if you if you kind of go and say, well, you know, I've been doing this research with children and they find that these experiences that are extrasensory, so we all have sensory experiences, we can't argue with that, but these are kind of extrasensory and we can learn from these. We have more chance then of having the doors opened and to be able to in some way participate in informing what they're doing. And it's a very slow process, but it's a slow process for, for what whatever the subject or the topic is in any kind of research and involving children in shaping kind of policy and practice. Um, and for me, that they, they are the ways, but to be honest, Christina, I think that the other thing that needs to happen and probably the most important thing is a paradigm shift. It, it's that whole bigger paradigm shift that's needed, really. I'd love to pick up on two of the things that you said. This idea of the paradigm shift is powerful and I, I, will, I will come back to it. I wanted to briefly bring up this idea that you're talking about of trespassing into someone else's academic field. And when you say that to me, that sounds like it's coming from exactly what you were describing, the masculine order of science. And then it really struck me when you said we need all hands on deck, which is, you know, you're going from this hierarchical, like, you know, get off my lawn, this is my <laughs> thing kind of thing to collaborative, which is archetypally feminine. So even in describing that, you 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 were going from one paradigm to the other. I felt so. Just I wanted to reflect that mm. back to you. Oh, that's that's lovely. No, that's um, that's really astute and very intuitive. And yeah, absolutely, it is. It, it's collaboration and for children as well because you know children are often perceived as selfish and um, egotistical in a sense, but. You know, there's, there's recent research, and I can't remember the name now, um, but it's around play and it's about sharing. Um, and it's really interesting because um, it was saying how children, rather than competing, are more collaborative, which, which I found really interesting because that, that's, that really contradicts, in a way, this kind of notion that children are inherent, <laughs> inherently selfish mm. or egotistical, and it's me, 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 but there's there's... The way when research changes, the funnily enough, the findings start to change too, and that's quite interesting in in and of itself. So it shows that children are also collaborative. But yes, all hands on deck, absolutely, and valuing because it comes back to that idea of recognizing different types of knowledges, how they are represented in the world, and how they can come together in some way to 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 each make sense of something that requires more than one lens. And at the moment, everything seems to be theorized through one lens, which is the lens of materialism, for example. When you talked about this need for a paradigm shift, this is, I believe, something that is happening that is underway and that needs to be approached, in my view, from different angles. And one of these angles um, that has been on my mind, especially in preparing for this interview, is what can we do as people in our everyday lives, just as we go about our lives, how can we help move the needle forward and go beyond this materialist paradigm and actually push for a better and bigger understanding of what it means to be human? Um, and in coming back to children, one of the things that you draw attention to in your research is that, unfortunately, 
children and young people's um, extrasensory experiences are routinely, and I quote, silenced, ignored, or medicalized by adults in authority, um, end of quote, which then can cause these children suffering and even causes some of the older children to just hide the, their experiences from parents or other mm -hmm. adults because they, they either had a negative experience or they just anticipate that it's not going to be well received. Um, on the other hand, in stark contrast to these negative reactions, you found that children and young people can actually experience healing and transformation via these experiences, particularly when supported by adults in authority. So this is one of the avenue, avenues that I see you know, on the ground, okay, but how can we as parents or other adults in children's lives actually support children as they have or choose or not choose to share these experiences? Yes, let's go with that. Mm. How can we best support so them? So there's three questions there. So I'll, I'll try and... Yes, so starting from the middle question. Um, so one of the reasons why children... Um, don't want to share of course their experiences um younger children happily share they just tell everyone there's no kind of conditioning there there's no kind of recognition that this experience that i might be talking about might be considered weird or disordered or um but with the older children especially the teenagers there's a huge recognition that if i tell my friend for example that i am hearing a voice that no one else can hear they're going to think I'm schizophrenic or they're going to think I'm disordered. And why is it that um, a child or a young person can't share their experience without fear of it being labelled in that particular way? It's because of our mainstream paradigm. It's because it's a materialist paradigm. And under that paradigm, these experiences are not possible. They're impossible. They're not possible in this physicalist, materialist paradigm. Um, but the experiences are there. So in, in, in terms of the way that I kind of have come to, to, to thinking about ideas of the world, so to speak, is what ideas of the world can offer some explanatory power for children's experiences that are have a very subjective reality for them but not just for them if you know if we think about qualitative research when we're looking for evidence we look um what we look at is is there an experience how many people have the same experience you know and these kinds of experiences there are many children and many adults too who have these kinds of experiences so it kind of comes again it comes beyond just a personal story it is a phenomena so to speak and it's a phenomena that can happen to different populations too across the globe as well and and across different cultures so it's definitely there but our mainstream paradigm our mainstream way of viewing the world tells us that it isn't and it's impossible so a children's natural sometimes way of being can't be expressed um, and this is all to do with how our systems are structured and orientated in line with this materialist paradigm. Um, and that's why children aren't getting well under this mental health system. And there's levels to this too. So very quickly, a child can be sent to a general practitioner who isn't qualified in mental health, for example, but we'll follow this routinized process of, okay, you're hearing a voice or you're seeing something. So this is mental health team, for example, and then it goes to mental health team. And then just on a practical level, children and families are left waiting for 12 months to see a practitioner. So even though processes may be becoming better equipped by, for example, including different ways of um using therapy with children whether it's play therapy or talking therapies and these kinds of things that are coming in there's still a significant wait for for a family from touch point from say a gp or a, or a teacher in a school to seeing someone who, who can help them and what normally happens in this time is things get worse because now there's a problem here 
because we've framed it as a problem and we've framed it as we've had to go and see an expert outside of ourselves. And this expert happens to be in a system that, again, is very materially informed and has one particular way of looking at these things. And it seems to me to be kind of this kind of um, spiraling of things that can take um, maybe something that's a transient experience and maybe that's there for a particular purpose because suffering we suffer for a purpose you know suffering has meaning in a way and can and can suffering can kind of it certainly did for me catalyze different ways of being and being in the world and seeing the world um in a way that's much more peaceful than than what we're meant to do in, in this particular paradigm that we're in. So, so what I'm saying is suffering has a purpose, but we we don't see suffering as having a purpose in this paradigm. We see it as something we need to very quickly get rid of. And, you know, because of this, I think this is where we can have this spiraling effect. And then we have adults who are who very well-intentioned adults, whether they're parents and carers, and we are also conditioned we are also conditioned to react to a child as, um, oh my gosh, okay, my child's hearing voices or seeing things that aren't there or has has talked about this really strange experience or the feeling that they're not in the world, for example, which is kind of like dissociation. And we as parents or carers or teachers can, can go into this very quickly conditioned mode of worry, of anxiety. So we have this kind of dialectic between all these different modes of things, adults, children's experiences, systems, services, ways of thinking about the world that are all kind of meshed up um, around this experience. And that in a way leads back to, to one of your other questions about what can we do? And there's something there about being attentive to ourselves. And, and inquiring more into who am I? Well, who am I? You know, what is this self? What does it mean to be a human being? And, you know, certainly when we do that as adults, as parents or professionals who work with children, it becomes very, it becomes easier then to, to not knee jerk and not fall into that conditioning narrative that we have, that all of us have, that says, okay, we, we have to address this really quickly because this child is not allowed to suffer. But children do suffer. They do suffer. And if we can create a space, and, and just to put out there as well, not all extrasensory experiences are related to distress and suffering. There are some very positive ones too. And when a child has a positive one, it can very quickly turn into a negative one, depending on how it's responded to by the adults around the child, so to speak. Um, but yeah, so it's about attending to ourselves and then we can we can be with children. We can create that space. This is a space of deep listening, of not rejecting what they're saying, of not quickly theorizing it as um, not just mental health narratives, but also my child is really gifted narrative. My child has a special gift um, that can be equally as dangerous. You know, I think I think it was Joseph Campbell who said something along the lines of there's not much difference between the schizophrenic and the and the mystic. You know, we're all swimming in this kind of these waters that are very muddied in a way. But even that narrative around the supernatural narrative and my child's really gifted, that can be equally as dangerous, too. So it's about dropping all narratives, dropping that already theorized material in a way and just being with your child and listening and, and acknowledging because sometimes all a child needs is to say you know what I had this experience it was really weird it shook me up or it was really happy and I need to share this and I need to share this because it brings it into the world and it brings it into relation with others in the world which which is really really important for these kinds of experiences in describing how we can best support children, what what I hear is also this idea of a very fine line um, how in, in how we culturally think about mental health at the moment between um, mental health and supporting someone in their mental health and these experiences. Um, so it does strike me as a 
very tricky line um, to navigate. And at the same time, I am mindful that our current conceptions of mental health are also part of a materialist paradigm that we live in. And here, I think it would be useful for our listeners if we made it very explicit what we mean by these terms, materialist paradigm and post-materialist. Um, that anecdote comes to mind of the two fish who swim in water and one of the fish asks the other one, how's the water? And the other one says, what water? So I feel the materialist paradigm is just the way things are um, mm -hmm. often in our minds and we find it difficult to step outside of it because we don't realize that this is not necessarily objective reality. It's rather a model of reality. Yeah. Um, so yeah. could you walk us through these two things a materialist paradigm and a post-materialist paradigm to give our listeners language to approach these topics and supporting their children yeah so um in a really nutshell and crudish way in terms of what do we mean so materialism or physicalism which is an older term so material materialism kind of branches off from physicalism it's the idea that um reality is made of kind of physical objects in a way and that um, our experience, subjective experiences um, our consciousness is kind of an epiphenomenon so a product of something that's material now the, there are problems with that because like you said Christina it's completely unquestioned so it's taken for granted that, that that's how everything is and because it's taken for granted, therefore, our society, well, I say our society, but certain societies. So, you know, the, the Western society, uh, for example, is built from that premise. So sy systemically, so systems in, in the kind of Western orientated um, societies are based on that premise, which means that positions human beings as kind of biological machines in a sense, uh, and if not biological machines, as, as commodities in this kind of, our, maybe capitalist society, but we're, we're commodities in a sense. So it has real world implications. So even though, you know, philosophy and ideas of the world can be very far removed from the everyday, from real life, you know, unless we can, use these ideas to inter again interrogate and challenge and highlight the fact that it's unquestioned and it is unquestioned and then we look at children's living if we take children as the example children's living experiences for example that completely challenge that model their ways of being in the world and their experiences you know challenge that model significantly so there's a real paradox there. Um, so in terms of so post-materialism is a term, it's kind of an umbrella term that's that's coming up now in certain fields of scholarship, such as philosophy and science. And it it's kind of emphasizing that move away from materialism, from thinking about um everything as being um ontically physical or material and everything else just kind of a byproduct of that and it flips it around in a sense and and you know there's there's different um ideas of the world so for example there's panpsychism and and you know many many kind of um theories of panpsychism or philosophies still kind of retain this materialist idea in a sense and and claim that you know, maybe consciousness is is in the smallest atoms and the smallest particles, but there's still kind of that that holding on to the idea that kind of the material still primary, and then you've got other kind of models such as analytical idealism, idealism for example, or cosmopsychisms that will kind of flip it right over, and the starting point then is consciousness. Or, or, or the mental, so the mental or the consciousness is primary to, to physical and material or matter. For me, um, it makes perfect sense. It, it makes perfect sense to me on, let's just say, a personal level in terms of 
ways for thinking about and making sense of my own experiences that we started with at the, the beginning of, of our conversation but also in terms of children's experiences and children's ways of being in the world and that for me it's, a, it's kind of a model if whatever model is starting from consciousness as primary of carrying this uh, as this ontic principle so to speak I think we could start to make sense of many areas of, of, of social life without necessarily having to change everything either. It's just, for me, it's a different starting point, so to speak, mm. but that would influence the everyday world. Because if we stopped thinking about children, for example, as biological machines, and maybe thought about them more as, as expressions of... Um, of a shared field of subjectivity or a consciousness at large that we're that we all are that we're all connected to then that's coming into the territory of again well we're all really connected you know th this is really important because at the minute society it separates us it segregates us this paradigm is very individualistic in a sense so it, it's important for um recognizing and approaching um and it's something about social transformation in in that that's really important and and very pressing you know it's very very pressing now absolutely i'd love to ask you something related to what you just shared if you imagine that 50 years from today have passed what are the advances that you hope will have made in how children's uh, and young people's experiences are investigated, particularly these extrasensory experiences? That's a really tough question, Christina. Um, hmm. I would hope that um, our, you know, our mainstream worldview is, is completely transformed. And, you know, and we all have our own ideas of what model that may be in a way of, 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 so I don't want to kind of go into, well, I want it to be my idea, if that makes sense, or my, because I, I, I'm also, I'm also very mindful and conscious of, for me, although we may be connected, interconnected, intraconnected, all one, in a sense, which is what some of these ideas of the world point to. We also have this very beautiful diversity and difference that's really important. You know, if we are kind of these conscious probes of, of a wider um, field of existence, for example, that difference and that individuality is also really important. And, and I just wanted to come back to that because, um, you know, earlier I was saying that, oh, it's, all, it's individual and it's, but there is also some, something really beautiful about um being an individual too so just just to come back to that point um but i think the paradigm has to change and i am hoping that in 50 years time it it will have changed and that humans are really um in tune and intuiting better a sense of of who they are and and how and, and their relationships with the natural world and and where it all figures into each other in a sense um and and until that happens it's really difficult to say i think our systems need a complete overhaul you know it's very kind of top down um very ordered and you know i always have these kind of um utopian ideas of of kind of come from it coming bottom up in a sense of community life of of community and connections and collaborations and 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 although a lot of us are trying to establish that in our working patterns, I think, you know, it might be a really uh, valuable template for us for at a societal level too, you know, and people coming together and sharing their expertise, coming to know your own expertise mm -hmm. instead of relying on that external expertise and then creating and developing that community expertise. Um, that's how I would like to see things go in that and what would research look like in that um well I would I would hope that um 
where we have these kind of normative and rigid systems of doing research that that would be more cooperative um, and and more inclusive uh, of different or not different but various you know various knowledges methodologies and and representations you know discourses whether it's art and image whether it's movement whether it's language whether it's mathematics um, linguistics that they're kind of all equally valued in a sense but that depends on on the research too because there are some cases where of course you know painting a picture might not work so well in a in a very rigorous scientific experiment it may complement it somewhere so I think we have to also be realistic in it's very contextual and relational too so to think 50 years from now it's um um yeah, you'd know where you'd like to see it go, but where it's going to actually be, I'd like to be really optimistic. I think, you know, there is optimism in the way that that you can see transformation happening. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you can see it in, in, the, in the everyday. Um, you know, I, I live in, um, I'm in the UK and, and I live in a part of the UK that is particularly deprived. Um, you know, it's very segregated. It's deprived. There are there are lots of issues here. There's addiction. There's poverty. Um, but people are, are questioning that they are, even though they have these miseries and these kinds of prisons in a way. So they don't have the freedoms in a way that some some of us do to be able to kind of go out in the world and have these conversations or be exposed in a way to this type of information, there is something happening where they are beginning to question and and interrogate slightly um, of what's going on because it because it's because it's becoming so explicit in a sense that it that what's wrong in the world is becoming more and more difficult to hide in a way. So so there's that level where it's there's kind of a recognition on on the everyday level um and somehow that meeting and converging with what's happening in the world of theory and academia and, and these two worlds coming together that that has to happen and it has to happen quickly too lastly donna um where can our listeners find you and your work well i usually have a website but that's down under reconstruction <laughs> at the moment um, so i do have some published papers um, and you will find them in journals such as um, Global Studies of Childhood, um, Journal of Parapsychology, um, Explore. And maybe I could send you a list or something, Christina. So sorry, I wasn't very prepared for that. But I do have published articles um, and I do write public interest pieces for organisations such as the Essentia Foundation. They have a wonderful website, and, and in fact, there's there's lots of academics writing wonderful things on there. So for anyone who who is interested in ideas of the world, that's a great place to look. Um, and other public interest pieces on uh, organisations such as science and non-duality. Um, I do have a YouTube channel, and there are a few videos on there too. And of course, there is the book that is coming out in July, um, that does cover some of the things that we've talked about today Christina and much more too that's awesome I know you have your book next yes that was your book it's got um a wonderful forward by Bernardo Castrop um it's such a beautiful forward um yes so out in July John Hunt publishing 2023 this year so that's amazing. Um, we will have the link to the book um, and to all other resources in the video description. So dear listeners, make sure to check them out. And with that, um, this was Dr. Donna Thomas. Donna, I want to thank you so much for being here today. Um, this was a really powerful conversation. I felt I'm sure our listeners will walk away with a lot of actionable insights. Thank you. Thank you, Christina, for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.